Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be talking about sovereignty as it relates both to natural law and constitutional law. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockie and Liberal, your favorite law-talking guy. I move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah. That's why you're the judge and I'm the law-talking guy. The lawyer. Right. Now, if you are new to the program, I want to welcome you. Uh, this is a podcast where we are going to be discussing... Uh, legal theory, and moral philosophy as it relates to current events dealing with law, politics, and culture. And today we have a very interesting episode. Uh, This is a topic that really actually started out as something of a part three in a series that I have been doing uh, by request from a regular viewer of mine about common sovereign citizen uh, legal theories and conceptions and misconceptions. Uh, And this was the last one on the list that I had left to do. So, uh, yeah, I want to thank Jay once again for sending me the list of sovereign citizen topic suggestions. Uh, it was a great list, uh, and this is a series I've really uh, enjoyed quite a bit making. Now, if there is a topic that you would like me to cover, uh, you can go ahead and uh, send me an email and, and request it at categoricalimperatives at gmx.com, or if you want to go over to uh, a Patreon page that I had just very recently created for the show. But you can also, as you can see, go to Venmo and PayPal. Uh, but I'm really trying to get the Patreon thing going. And if you go over there, uh, you will get for $2 a month as one of several perks that I am offering to patrons, uh, a guarantee that if you ask me for a specific topic uh, to be covered, uh, that I will make a video uh, sort of really tailored fit to your question. Uh, you'll also get a lot of other cool stuff. Uh, you'll get access to uh, an extensive uh, show notes page that I do for each episode that has just uh, tons of information on the subjects we talk about, uh, and a lot of times interesting uh, information that relates that I just simply didn't have time to get to in the episode, but uh, is, uh, yeah, just all kinds of goodies. Uh, and then finally, the other thing I have is that uh, it has a private uh, website that I set up where it can aggregate uh, published articles of mine. Uh, and I don't know if you guys uh, are aware. I, I really don't talk about this too much uh, during the podcast, but I do uh, submit and write a lot of articles uh, that really kind of uh, span anywhere from being like a, uh, you know, a, a blue book style uh, law review paper uh, to uh, online publications through sites such as uh, Substack. Uh, I occasionally have pieces appear at Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, I've recently had a few pieces uh, featured on the Libertarian Institute website. Uh, and so you can get access to a page that will aggregate all of those uh, articles that are often about topics that are similar to what I talk about here, but they're things that I haven't talked about on the show before. So it's a way to get uh, more than what you're already getting here listening to the podcast. 
Uh, so yeah, anyways, enough whoring myself out. Uh, let's get to the topic for the day. Now, in this video, uh, unlike the other ones, I don't think it's really necessary for me to explain uh, what the common sovereign citizen belief is and to specifically debunk their claims. I think a clearer way is for me to simply discuss the topic of sovereignty and to define and explain what it is and that once you understand what it is, you would have no problem later contemplating a sovereign citizen theory of sovereignty uh, and understanding what it is not. Um, so without me having to necessarily go through and spell it out precisely and do, I guess, what you could kind of call a debunking of the theory. So let's start by establishing some first principles of sovereignty uh, before we focus on its meaning to us in our particular law and custom. Now, John Locke noted that if all men are by nature perfectly free and equal, there can then be no claim grounded in nature of one to rule another. And to be sure, there may be attributes of uh, superiority, such as age, looks, name, connections, uh, that endow some individuals with political influence. Uh, and as Locke himself noticed, excellency of parts and merit may place others above the common level, yet these differences among human beings cannot outweigh the politically decisive corollary of original freedom and equality. It is consent and consent alone that makes a member of any commonwealth, and accordingly, no one has a right to govern another without his consent. Now, whether that consent is explicit or implicit, Locke explains, does not affect the basic principle, and in either case, the consent given is a necessary condition. Locke goes on to say that an individual can no more agree to eschew measures of self-help or preservation than a community can agree to forego measures to save itself from the attempts and designs of any body, even of their legislators, whenever they shall be so foolish or so wicked as to lay and carry on designs against the liberties and properties of the subject. The powers of governors are fiduciary in character. The trustees are necessarily and properly accountable to those who have a vested trust in them. Now, on the other hand, uh, David Hume uh, pointed to what he felt was an obvious point that almost all governments which exist at present or of which there remains any record in story have been founded originally either on usurpation or conquest or both without any pretense of a fair consent or voluntary subjection of the people. He goes on that similarly, subjects everywhere acknowledge their prince's rights and suppose themselves born under obligations of obedience to a certain sovereign. Is it then not absurd to posit a contractual arrangement so much unknown to all of them that over the face of the whole earth there scarcely remain any traces or memory of it. Now, this was an objection that Locke had anticipated. And he 
attempted to answer by showing that his compact theory might be reconciled with the history of political origins. Hume clearly thought that he had the better argument, though the appeal to common practice proved less persuasive than I believe he might have wished. And indeed, uh, James Otis uh, thought this no refutation at all, uh, and that at all uh, consensual basis is required in political life. Uh, in his analysis, he said that it was not compact, but the necessity of our natures that made us associate. Government might be considered an expression of the laws of nature and of nature's God, but here on earth, the indispensable, original, supreme, sovereign, absolute, and uncontrollable is the people. Those on whom they confer sovereignty hold it in trust, and on conditions that the trustee shall incessantly consult their good. If practice deviates from right, so much the worse for practice, that if every princess Nimrod had been a tyrant, it would not, it would not prove a right to tyrannize. Now Locke's argument sat especially well with the advocates of popular government. Uh, he made an argument for this around 1689, which really became the premise of 1776. Uh, but the reason of the argument goes far beyond the ordinary forms of unmixed popular government. As every reader of the Declaration of Independence can recall, uh, it is governments without restriction uh, that are said to derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. And it is any form of government that is held accountable. If it becomes destructive of the ends for which governments are instituted in the first place. And as a statement of right then, the principle is a universal one that all forms of government derive their legitimacy from the consent of the governed. All forms of government claiming legitimacy are subject to the master principle of popular sovereignty and hence are accountable to the governed for the faithful performance of their charge. Let's talk about government as trusteeship. Now, this sort of statement of right uh, that was argued by Locke and assumed by Otis uh, was considered by the author of Cato's letters, uh, namely two men named James Burr and Thomas Gordon, uh, and they saw this as an old doctrine uh, whose, uh, excuse me, it was an old doctrine, and it was those who denied that doctrine uh, who were the innovators. The right was essentially reducible to a maxim and no longer needed argument and only acknowledgement in a bill of rights. And if the representatives retraced this reasoning, it was principally to reach a necessary conclusion. Those to whom legislative power has been entrusted could not themselves prescribe the foundation upon which the legislature stands. To suppose that the sovereign people would or could delegate their right to give life to the fundamental constitution of a free state was absurd. 
to argue in this way, I imported, if not impiety, a real popery in politics. So popular consent and responsibility uh, had really become at this point in time a truth that was dripping from everyone's lips, and yet it was no simple truth. We had repeated crises in constitution making that had disclosed some of the complexities and ambiguities inherent in the Americans' common premise. Arguing against those who doubted the legitimacy of reallocating government powers while living under the Articles of Confederation, uh, James Wilson turned to the highest written authority to support his assertion when he said that the supreme, absolute, and uncontrollable authority remains with the people. The great and penetrating mind of Locke seems to be the only one that pointed towards even the theory of this great truth. But was it the Americans acting on the language of the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence who uh, had and would continue to put that truth into effect? And under what circumstances and how? Really, it would have to be American experience that would refine this theory. As the preamble to the U.S. Constitution says, and this is very significant, uh, it starts with the words, we the people. It says, we the people do ordain and establish this Constitution. And by doing that, the Constitution makes it clear that sovereignty under the Constitution rests with we the people of the United States. This uh, is popular sovereignty, and this is a unique American idea, that the people exist independent from their institutions of government, that people communicate their will and communicate their ideas by way of a written constitution. Under this kind of system of popular sovereignty, the government can never claim to speak with the voice of the people. The voice of the people is only found in the written constitution, and government institutions can only exercise those powers which were actually given into the hands of the particular government by way of said written constitution. Now, what's interesting about the American system is that it is this very complicated machine that includes not only government institutions on a state level, but also government institutions on a national level. This is, as, as you all know, a federalist system. So that you have people, both the national unified people of the United States and the independent people of the several states who continue to have their own sovereign independent governments. Now, this retained sovereign independence was actually promised by the Federalists during the debates over the original Constitution. You had people like Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 81 insisting that states would continue to retain their sovereign existence. And in the debates throughout Virginia, as well as up and down the eastern seaboard, this really was a particular concern. And it was insisted over and over again, that although we were creating a new 
national people through the adoption of this proposed constitution that we were also preserving aspects of sovereignty on that local level. So when the Declaration of Independence spoke of all people being endowed with unalienable rights such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they were confirming their belief in the existence of a natural right. Now, in modern society, every individual has two types of rights. We have our natural rights and we have legal rights. Natural rights are rights granted to all people by nature, or some might say granted by God, uh, either one, uh, that cannot be denied or restricted by any government or individual. Natural rights are often said to be granted to people by the natural law. Legal rights are rights granted by governments or legal systems. As such, uh, legal rights can be modified, restricted, or repealed. In the United States, legal rights are granted by the legislative bodies of the federal and local government. The concept of a natural law establishing the existence of specific natural rights uh, it first appeared in ancient Greek philosophy and was referred to uh, by the Roman philosopher Cicero. It was later referred to by biblical scholars, notably in the 3rd century St. Augustine, and then especially the 12th century scholar Thomas Aquinas, who further developed this theory through the Middle Ages. So natural rights were frequently cited during the Age of Enlightenment as a means to oppose absolutism, uh, the divine right of kings, if you will. Today, some philosophers and political scientists will contend that human rights are synonymous with natural rights. Uh, others do prefer to keep the term separate in order to avoid the mistaken association of any aspect of human rights not typically applied to natural rights. For example, natural rights are considered to be beyond the power of human governments to deny or protect. So, let's talk about Jefferson, John Locke, national rights, and independence. In drafting the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson had justified demanding independence by citing several examples of ways in which England's King George III had refused to recognize the natural rights of American colonists. Now, even with fighting between colonists and British troops already taking place on American soil, most members of Congress had still hoped for a peaceful agreement with the motherland. It was in the first two paragraphs of that fateful document, adopted by the Second Continental Congress on July 2nd, 1776. Jefferson revealed his idea of natural rights in the often quoted phrases such as, all men are created equal, they are endowed with inalienable rights, and that these inalienable rights are, or among them, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, anyone educated during the Age of Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, like Jefferson, tended to adopt their beliefs uh, from philosophers who used reason 
and science to explain human behavior. And very much like those thinkers, Jefferson believed in a universal adherence to the laws of nature. And this was the key to advancing humanity. Many historians agree that Jefferson drew most of his beliefs in the importance of natural rights that he expressed in the Declaration of Independence from John Locke and specifically from his second treatise of government. Now, uh, John Locke, uh, just uh, to mention, I guess, uh, is a person I hold in very uh, high regard. Uh, that is, in fact, where my uh, namesake comes from on the show. Uh, my uh, name I used, whatever, Lockean liberal, is defined from him, John Locke, who is considered the father of liberalism. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. So, anyways, really the direct relationship between Jefferson and Locke is hard to deny uh, because in his paper, Locke wrote that all people are born with certain God-given inalienable natural rights that governments can neither revoke, including, uh, as he put it, life, liberty, and property. Locke also argued that along with land and belongings, property included the individual self, which included well-being or happiness. Now, this is a fascinating topic, and this is actually one that I'm going to be doing a whole episode on very soon, explaining why all rights are property rights. But I think for now, it will suffice to say that Locke believed that it was the single most important duty of government to protect the natural rights of their citizens. In return, for a government created by consent to protect our natural rights, Locke expected those citizens to follow the legal laws enacted by the government. And this is obviously where the sovereign citizen theory of sovereignty would break down, and that they think sovereign uh, means that they are somehow above the law, that, that uh, they, they can hold the government to this sort of common standard, uh, you know, that we could find in the, the almost contract of the Constitution, I guess you could say, but that they don't have to hold up their end of it, uh, which is really, yeah, just really nonsensical and it really doesn't need much explaining to be debunked, which is why I'm not really going to go into that too much right now. So moving on, except in very small states where the government is administered by the people themselves in person, the exercise of the sovereign power is confined to the establishment of the constitution of the state or the amendment of its defects. or to the correction of the abuses of the government. The constitution of a state is, properly, that instrument by which the government or administrative authority of the state is created. Its power is defined, their extent limited, their duties of the public functionaries prescribed, and the principles according to which the government may be administered and delineated. Now, the government or administrative authority of a state is that portion only of the sovereignty which, by the Constitution, 
entrusted to the public functionaries uh, make them the agents and servants of the people. So legitimate government can therefore only be derived from the voluntary grant of the people and only when exercised for their benefit. Now, in the United States, the people have retained the sovereignty uh, in their own hands. They have, in each state, distributed the government or administrative authority of the state into two distinct branches, one internal and one external. Uh, The former of these, uh, they have confided, with very few exceptions, into the state governments and the latter to the federal government. Now, anyone who has been watching the show for a while knows one of my favorite things to do is to uh, take an opportunity to introduce you guys to a founder who nobody tends to know or nobody knows much about, but everybody should. Uh, And because we're going to be talking about the case of Chisholm versus Georgia here in just a second, I think this is a good chance to uh, just talk about uh, John Jay for a little bit and give you guys a little bit of an idea who he is. So, while it's rather unfortunate that people today don't tend to consider uh, John Jay as a central figure of importance to our founding, the the interesting thing is that every person we do consider a central figure uh, to this unique importance uh, all considered his uh, con- contribution, John Jay's contribution, one of unique importance to the na- uh, to the nation's founding. And plenty of founders who had massive egos and very high opinions of their self-importance. Uh, I'm thinking people like even Alexander Hamilton, for example, or John Adams. Uh, even these, even the most egotistical and arrogant founders tended to agree that John Jay's contribution was both central and unique in its importance to the success of the young nation. Now, his achievements extend to every branch of government on the state, federal, and even international level. For one, Jay, who was a native of New York and born there in 1745, uh, was a reluctant revolutionary. He was a delegate to the First Continental Congress, but he had a very different view of that Congress and its mission than we often assume today with our benefit of history and hindsight. Now, he always maintained that he signed on to the revolution to protect and preserve traditional British rights and liberties. Now, Jay initially began his career in the practice of law, but essentially from the time of the revolution, he began a career in public service that was maintained for the rest of his life. And after 1776, he never returned to the practice of law. He was president of the wartime Continental Congress. He served as the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, which was really the precursor to our Secretary of State. After the Revolutionary War ended, he was an essential diplomat in the peace negotiations with England that led to the Treaty of Paris uh, that, among other things, 
really vastly expanded the territory of the United States. And you you would be hard-pressed to find another founder who has filled as many high offices as Jay Wood over the course of his life. He served the state of New York as the principal author of his very first constitution in 1777. He served as that state's first chief justice. He was the minister plenipotentiary to Spain during the Revolutionary War, and as I mentioned, Secretary of Foreign Affairs under the Articles of Confederation. And it it was Alexander Hamilton uh, and James Madison and John Jay who were the three authors of the Federalist Papers that were uh, arguing for the adoption of the United States Constitution. And then, of course, uh, John Jay served as the first Chief Justice of the United States. And while the founders bickered fairly colorfully, I guess you could say, among themselves, uh, they all agreed on the virtues that John Jay had. They noted his centrality in these talks with England. Uh, John Adams, who was another uh, delegate who was part of uh, drafting that treaty, uh, praised Jay as, quote, of more importance than any of the rest of us, end quote. And when Alexander Hamilton began to write the Federalist Papers, he initially turned to John Jay uh, when he was sort of conceiving this idea of publishing these letters uh, under the pen name of Publius. And the reason that Jay was only contributed five of the articles that eventually made up the 86 Federalist Papers uh, before James Madison was recruited by Hamilton was only because Jay became very ill and was unable to continue to contribute. Now, George Washington thought so highly of John Jay that when he was forming his original cabinet, he offered the first position, and I mean any, any position, to Jay. He, he just said, whatever position you want is yours. Let me know you got first pick. I mean, that's yeah, quite a compliment. And he chose... Uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Now, in 1794, at Washington's bidding, Jay went to England to negotiate a treaty that both men didn't know would be controversial. Uh, and although it was very unpopular in its day, uh, what came to be known as the Jay Treaty resolved a number of differences with Great Britain that had been left over from the Revolution. And this treaty... Uh, delayed open conflict for a number of years until the War of 1812. It has been said, unfortunately, and is probably true, that the Jay Treaty cost John Jay the chance to succeed Washington as our second president. However, upon his return to New York from England in 1795, he was elected the state's second governor, and he served two three-year terms. As governor, he signed the Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery. And finally, in 1801, after 27 years of arduous and faithful public service, he decided that it was time to retire from public life. Jay could have carried on uh, in a succession of high offices, and he instead 
chose to retire to a farm that he had purchased in upstate New York, and he lived out the last 27 years of his life really as a simple country farmer. I will, of course, be including plenty of links down in the description of this video uh, to some great resources where you can go and you can learn more about John Jay, his life, his writings. He is definitely someone worth getting to know. So now you know! All right, moving on to Chisholm versus Georgia. So in 1793, a controversial Supreme Court opinion convinced Congress of the need to amend the Constitution to provide a better safeguard for federalism. And indeed, even the Federalists, actually, in the first Congress, viewed the majority opinion in the Chisholm case as a clear example of federal overreach. Under the new Constitution, the condition of sovereign immunity in federal courts was stressed several times by the Federalists, who were then acting as the chief advocates for this new framework. For example, in Federalist 81, Alexander Hamilton declared that it is inherent in the nature of sovereignty not to be amenable, amenable to the suit of an individual without its consent. This is the general sense and the general practice of mankind, and the exemption as one of the attributes of sovereignty is now enjoyed by the government of every state in the Union. He further went on to say that the contracts between a nation and individuals are only binding on the conscience of the sovereign and have no pretensions to a compulsive force. They confer no right of action, independent of a sovereign will, and to ascribe to the federal courts by mere implication and in destruction of a pre-existing right of state governments, a power which would involve such a consequence would be altogether forced and unwarrantable. Even so, the Supreme Court seemed to disregard this precept when it took up the case of Chisholm in the 1790s, and instead of acting as willing participants to the case, the state of Georgia refused to even show up to represent itself in court. So in 1793, the Supreme Court decided the very first case that was really a constitutional controversy in Chisholm versus Georgia when they considered whether a state could be sued in federal court by a citizen of another state. Now, the facts of this case actually arose before the Constitution had even been ratified. It was during the Revolutionary War that the Executive Council of Georgia had authorized the purchase of clothing from one Robert Farquhar, a South Carolina merchant. After receiving the supplies, Georgia did not deliver the payment as promised. Soon after Farquhar died, in 1793, the executor of his estate, Alexander Chisholm, filed suit against Georgia in the Supreme Court under their original jurisdiction.
so this suit raised an important question of first principles. Could an individual like Chisholm sue a state like Georgia? Well, when we turn to Article 3, Section 2, Clause 1, which is, is known as the uh, Person-State Diversity Clause, uh, one portion of the clause provides that the judicial power shall extend to controversies between a state and a citizen of another state. Oh, excuse me, the, this clause is called the State Citizen Diversity Clause, to be specific. Um, anyways, so yeah, Chisholm, who was a citizen of South Carolina, was seeking to sue Georgia, which obviously was a state. Georgia objected to being a defendant in such a lawsuit because the state argued that it could not be sued in federal court without its consent because Georgia was indeed sovereign. Now, indeed, Georgia even refused to uh, make an appearance because it took the position that the, that the Supreme Court lacked jurisdiction over the state. Now, the five justices on the court at the time wrote five separate opinions at this time, and the Supreme Court did not, as they do now, issue a single opinion of the court. Instead, each justice wrote his own opinion to explain his vote. Uh, the opinions were then published seriatim, which simply means in the order that they were issued by the court. Now, the first opinion we have uh, is from Justice John Blair. He said, the text of the Constitution did not recognize the doctrine of sovereign immunity that existed in England, and the Constitution of the United States was the only fountain from which I shall draw, the only authority to which I shall appeal. So whatever sovereignty the states gained following the revolution, he explained, was surrendered when they adopted the Constitution. Next, Justice James Wilson, who was actually a lead drafter of the Constitution, wrote the second majority opinion. His opinion relied primarily on what he called principles of general jurisprudence. To the Constitution, he said, the term sovereign is completely unknown. Rather, Wilson characterized the individual free man as the original sovereign. The states were mere aggregations of individuals. They were a collection of original sovereigns. So laws derived from the pure source of equality and justice, he wrote, must be founded on the consent of those whose obedience they require. The sovereign, when traced to its source, must be found in the man. He went on to say that the preamble to the Constitution begins with we the people. And it is with these three words, he explained, that our national scene opens with the most magnificent object which the nation could present, the people of the United States. They are the first personage introduced. Finally, Wilson turned to the text of Article 3, Section 2, and the people of Georgia who ratified this provision had consented to the Supreme Court's jurisdiction and uh, to Chisholm's suit.
and he said, quote, as to the purposes of the Union, Georgia is not a sovereign state, end quote. Next was Justice William Cushing, who offered the third majority opinion. He focused on the wording of Article 3, Section 2. That section made no reference to whether a state was a plaintiff or a defendant. From the text, he concluded that the state could sue and be sued in federal court. And the fourth majority opinion came from uh, Chief Justice John Jay. He explained that before 1776, Americans were subject to the king and owed allegiance to him. From this history, Jake concluded that, uh, that fellow citizens and joint sovereigns cannot be degraded by appearing with each other in their own courts to have their controversies determined. Now, Justice James Iredell was the lone dissenter in the case. Uh, his seriatim opinion did appear first, but this was likely simply because he delivered it first before the others. Uh, now, in England, the king had absolute sovereign immunity and could not be sued. After the revolution, Iredell observed that sovereignty was transferred from the king to the state. Subsequently, neither the Constitution nor Congress expressly abandoned the concept of sovereign immunity. Therefore, Iredell concluded, following the principles of old law, the suit against Georgia should not be permitted. He stated, quote, I believe there is no doubt that neither in the state now in question nor in any other in the Union, any particular legislative mode authorizing a compulsory suit for the recovery of money against a state was in being either when the Constitution was adopted or at the time the Judicial Act was passed, end quote. Now, the majority opinion quickly became very unpopular among state legislatures, and in March of 1794, Congress introduced an amendment to the Constitution that would have made it impossible for Chisholm to sue Georgia. In February 1795, two years after the decision in Chisholm, the proposed amendment was ratified as the 11th Amendment to the Constitution. And that amendment provided that the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by the citizens of another, of another state or citizens of any foreign state. So the amendment modified Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution and originally, the judicial power expressly extended to controversies between a state and a citizen of another state. Now, while a state can be a plaintiff in a suit against another state or a citizen thereof, a state cannot be a defendant in a suit by a citizen of another state. So, while the doctrine of sovereign immunity was implicitly taken for granted under the unamended Constitution, it did appear necessary to add an explicit amendment 
to reiterate this principle. In illustrating the widespread appeal of the amendment, even the Federalists in Congress perceived the embrace of federalism to be a necessary action. This is why uh, Federalist Caleb Strong of Massachusetts drafted the version of the amendment that went to the Senate, while the anti-Federalist Theodore Sedgwick took the primary role getting this passed in the House of Representatives. And the bipartisan nature of the 11th Amendment was unambiguous. The amendment secured an overwhelming majority of 81 to 9 in the House and 23 to 2 in the Senate. And after the ratification of the 11th Amendment, it would be impossible for a citizen of one state to sue another state. However, the text of the amendment does not actually expressly address the opinions of the Chisholm majority, which concluded that states lacked sovereign immunity. Indeed, the 11th Amendment, like the original Constitution, does not invoke a concept of sovereign immunity at all. The 11th Amendment simply bars states from being sued by a citizen of another state. And this is a question that would not be addressed uh, by the court until the case of Hans versus Louisiana in 1890, but that is a case uh, whose discussion will have to wait for another day. Now, if you would like me to cover that case in the near future as its own episode as part of my Today in Supreme Court History series, uh, let me know in the comments or shoot me an email or best of all, head over to the Patreon page, uh, join me as a patron and make the suggestion over there. Anyways, by 1795, the requisite number of states had ratified the amendment, uh, thus putting it into legal effect. The amendment manifestly reversed the Chisholm opinion and dismissed the legal ramification of the J Court's judgment. Although the modern Supreme Court does assume a role of final arbiter over constitutional controversy, it was never actually meant to do so. Instead, the founders and framers expected the whims of the federal judiciary to be checked and superseded by Congress and the states through judicial stripping and the amendment process. As such, the case of Chisholm v. Georgia and the subsequent passage of the 11th Amendment underscored the Federalist orientation of the Union and the primacy of the states. Well, that is going to do it for today. I want to thank you so much for uh, spending some time here with me. Now, if you would like to support the show, there's a number of ways you can do that. Uh, you can leave me uh, a, your thoughts on the episode down in the comments section. Uh, you could subscribe to the channel to make sure you always know when I put out new videos. Or you could take a moment and just share the show with one person you know who you think would appreciate uh, just hearing this, uh, yeah. Now, if you want to do more than that to support the show, you can consider becoming a patron to the show uh, to help me grow the channel and to empower others with a greater understanding of constitutional law and classical liberal moral philosophy for as little as two bucks a month. 
and get yourself a bunch of extra goodies available to patrons only over there on Patreon. So, uh, if you want to follow up with the show, you can also uh, go to our page at odyssey.com. Uh, I've been uploading shows there really kind of as a, uh, a backup uh, in case my show ever gets disappeared off of YouTube, which doesn't seem like an impossibility at some point. Uh, so, yeah, anyways, uh, you can go visit me over there at Odyssey. You can find me uh, on Twitter at Lockie and Liberal. Or you can send me an email, categoricalimperatives at gmx.com. So once again, thank you so much for joining me here today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Of course, as always, de lenda es Carthago.